0: This podcast is brought to you by cyber attacks can be prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.
1: Hi, it's Unholy. I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv.
0: And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London.
1: And we really do hope you're enjoying your summer vacation and having a little bit of fun. And we thought this would be a really good opportunity to um, talk about and uh, let you listen again to things that we um, loved. It's called Conversations We Loved, and that's the reason. And I think our first one is a conversation we had in March initially with uh, a friend of mine, a close friend of mine and colleague and one of Israel's most prominent journalists, Ilana Dayan. Our conversation with her, originally originally aired uh, in March after she did something quite unusual for a an objective journalist. She spoke her mind, and she said uh, what she thinks about the judicial overhaul. This is something that gained a lot of traction uh, inside Israel and also outside.
0: That's right. And I think that's one of the reasons why it still um, holds relevance now, because she was Speaking about the apps, the moment, she said in very stark terms, it, she felt it was the, one of the biggest moments that the country had faced since 1948, since the founding. But also she did talk in sort of, timeless terms about the obligations of a journalist and those moments where it isn't enough just to be impeccably neutral, impartial, that sometimes you have to call it as you see it. There is something sort of enduring about that principle. And we, we sort of, three of us, kicked it around a bit in that conversation. But this was, the conversation itself had some lasting impact. So here's our conversation on Unholy with Ilana Diane.
1: Ilana Dayan is, I think it's safe to say, the most well-respected journalist in Israel. She has spearheaded the investigative news program Uvda for the past 30 years, the Israeli version of 60 Minutes, and much to my uh, chagrin, she still gets the best interviewees in the land and beyond, but I am uh, proud and happy to call her my dear friend. Ilana has a doctorate in law from Yale University, teaches constitutional law in the University of Tel Aviv, and was uniquely positioned to discuss the events in Israel even before her statement last week, but that is what we want to open our conversation with. Ilana, thank you so much for talking to us today.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you, Yonit, my dear friend, and with you, Jonathan. Nice to get to know you. I listen to you both. <laughs> good to meet you, too. It's good to meet you, too. It's our pleasure.
1: Um, so, Ilana, after 30 years of a career as an objective journalist, you spoke your mind on the about the judicial overhaul in the very first lines of your program on primetime television last week, and we asked you to read... Uh, out what you said on air, this time in English. I will just make clear that Simcha Rotman, who you mentioned, is the head of the Constitution um, Committee in the Knesset, the man who's spearheading this legislation. And Alice Miller is, uh, of course, the woman who petitioned the Supreme Court in Israel and got the military to open the ranks to the Israeli Air Force and specifically their pilots uh, course. So let's hear uh, your monologue on air last week. That's what we will be opening with.
2: I'll do that, I'll just mention that uh, we aired that program one day after the President of Israel laid out his own proposal, and it was rejected by the coalition, and for that matter I related to what happened one night before. So that's what I said. I would like to do something I've never done before. We have been airing Uvda for nearly 30 years now, bringing you approximately one story a week. For years, I've been under the notion that journalists should keep their opinions to themselves. But as of last night, it has become clear where we are heading. So tonight, I wish to speak from my heart, not necessarily as a journalist, but as Ilana, the daughter of Vilma and Mordechai, God rest their souls, who migrated from South America because of Zionism and stayed here because for them and for me, it was the greatest place on earth and for my kids as well. All three of them are sons of this land. All three want to build their homes here. Straight homes, gay homes, but mostly good homes, and very Israeli ones. I wish I could tell them that everything is going to be all right. But they have learned years ago to spot my fake optimism from Miles. And my optimism ran out, even before last night's events. It ended roughly when Simcha Rotman told Ben Shani not long ago on our program that the Supreme Court justices ruled that Alice Miller should be allowed to join the IDF Flight Academy only because she looked like a nice person, like their next-door neighbor, not because she deserves to, not because we deserve to have women fighter pilots and naval officers or women that soar in general, only because she looked like a nice person, and to Simcha Rotman, perhaps less so. So, as this process moves forward, Don't believe those who say that it will be all right, that the rights of gay, women, Arab, press, scholars, poor people, and eventually Orthodox and other groups will not be harmed. How do I know? Because I believe most of what Simcha Rotman and Yariv Levin say, and I see what they do. Because a regime that insists on appointing councils whose advice will not count, insists on appointing judges according to their politics, and insists on cutting their wings just in case, insists on enacting laws which cannot be overruled and denying human rights and human liberties that we cannot live without, that kind of regime would take us to a place no democracy has ever come back alive from. Because no government takes that kind of power just for show. Just like no one accumulates tons of gunpowder just to paint a children's drawing on the wall. And don't let the noise fool you. It's not that important if Bibi wants to cancel his trial and Gaffney wants to cancel the mandatory draft and Derry wants to cancel his criminal record. It's just unimportant noise. Like Justice Barak's mistakes and the Supreme Court's wrongful rulings. There were some along the way. Of course there were. But there's nothing about this reform that is meant to fix them. This is a suction of power, great and absolute power, to one place only. So now, with no compromise in sight, ask yourself one question. Is there one thing, just one thing, that the majority could not inflict on the minority after this move is complete? And then, imagine yourselves as part of that minority, any minority. And after that, choose on which side of history you'd rather be. And what will you tell one day the kids of this winter of 2023?
0: It's so powerful uh, hearing it for me a second or third time, but now obviously in English. That line, such a regime takes us to a place from which no democracy has ever returned alive. It's an incredibly stark warning. What do you say, Ilana, to those who absolutely agree with the views you've expressed, but worry that editorialising like that is crossing a Rubicon that from now on, you won't be seen as a impartial umpire, but as a player on the field, a a kind of partisan, and you say, given particularly the kind of changes that are underway here, it would actually be more valuable for you to remain as a kind of trusted purveyor, to quote the name of your show, of the facts... Rather than a combatant, which is, they might worry, how you will now forever be seen. You know, Yonita and I
2: had this conversation in text and subtext for many years. And we both, I think, uh, tried very hard to stay in the business of news rather than views. And I still see myself as a reporter whose job is to go out every morning, get the facts, speak the truth, and report it to our viewers. But nonetheless, these events of these last months created, I guess, a unique kind of clarity for me as to the profession and what it mandates these days. And, and I think it is, Jonathan, partly telling truth from false and and speaking truth to power, which we have to do anyway as journalists. And in this case, to give people a sense of what's really going on. Notwithstanding the fact that we can have many views on the on the issue and on the, on the situation but speaking truth to power means telling people what these moves mean to the future of this country and yes I felt that I have to cross a rubicon this time and to speak my mind and to do something I've never done before and yet to be very careful as to the use of the platform and the screen i don't intend of becoming an editorial you know journalist i intend of keep doing what i have done for many years but this time i felt i had to say something and so i did
1: you know i'm i'm curious about the the motive or or the thoughts behind it because the mind goes sort of as an instinct to walter cronkite if we lose walter cronkite we lose america now of course we don't live in that kind of world anymore. There's not one Walter Cronkite or one America or one Israel for that matter. And I think that in this issue, which is tearing the country apart, pretty much people have sort of made up their minds. So So is the motive here to speak your mind or to change minds?
2: You know, I've learned a while ago, many years ago that the most we can do is have people think. we We did a story many years ago about a Randau. Uh, neighborhood in Kiryat Gat in the southern part of Israel, and the only people who were left, uh, kept living in this very miserable building from the 1850s, were the oldest and the poorest. And we did that because there was a law undergoing in the Knesset of the public housing law, and we thought that we might influence. You know, the only thing that happened the day after the broadcast was that some kibbutznikim came as volunteers to fix the door of an old lady was leaving them. So sometimes all you can do is move people to fix a door. Sometimes <laughs> all you can do is get people think. And sometimes, you know, just before we started this conversation, I got a WhatsApp message from a hairstylist that we both know personally, Yonit. And he told me, you know, it was powerful. <laughs> I listened. I'm not sure that Elon has his mind set about what's happening. But if I got him and his client who is right now with him to think and perhaps they, you know, perhaps they they tell themselves, Ilana never did that, and we believed her when she covered so many events and so many issues. We don't have to think the same way she does, but perhaps we might listen.
0: Because mm. it, it, it's absolutely that—that's I think what gives it its force. It's the all the credibility, years and years and years of reporting. Have built up. And we're going to get into the substance, by the way, of the case you set out there, because I think it's essential. But just before we do, it's it's the concern I would have again is that given particularly, as it were, what you're up against, that you may have confirmed what has been until now not true, but a kind of perennial claim from the Prime Minister that the media is biased, the media is against us. And now he can say, look, even the most, you know, well, this hugely respected journalist who is dealing, in fact, even she's taken a stand against me. This tells you that everything I've been saying for years was always true. That would be, your need knows that I'm a worrier about these things. So this is my, this is my angst about this, that this, you know, you and what you represent is a very precious asset. And in a way, you can only use it once. And that's my concern.
1: Although we should mention that Netanyahu started his particular war against you a few years back, right, which is, I think, about 2016 when he called you a uh, representative of the extreme left. And that I think that opened up a Pandora's box in his relationship to mainstream media Yeah, India so general, Bibi no? didn't
2: need that to call me an extreme leftist. <laughs> uh, but yes, Jonathan, I, 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 I agree and I, I can relate to what you say. And, and I feel it even more so ever since last Thursday's broadcast that we need to be very careful using and spending this credit that we accumulate, all three of us, over the years. And most of all, I speak my mind, but I have to make sure that all the platforms that I have, both on radio and on television, are open and attentive and curious and always, always welcoming the other point of view with honesty and with responsibility and with journalistic integrity. I want to ask
1: one more, maybe personal question before we kind of dive into the judicial overhaul and what it means for Israel, because you I know how meticulously you write your texts and how I can only imagine how long you worked on this particular one. You mentioned your children and growing up and and having these homes in Israel or, or going to create these families for themselves. You said straight homes and gay homes. Are you concerned about what this means in this, quote unquote, new Israel for them to to live in this to to live in this situation.
2: Yes, I am and and we'll speak about it. I'm sure when we dive into the essence of this judicial overall. but I I'll tell you that I I wrote it uh, coming back from a short visit uh, with my daughter. Yaeli, she's with her husband in Philadelphia now. He's uh, uh studying there and I was talking to her about her future and I was thinking with her about her brother's future. And on the plane, I wrote it, and uh, as the plane was uh, landing in Israel, uh, the text was complete. Hmm. Uh, but, but it had to do with many conversations that I had with the kids, and I guess with uh, many conversations I had with myself about our own biography, my own biography. As you know, I wasn't born in this country. I, we made Aliyah. We came to Israel from Argentina when I was six with my parents, my brother and my late sister. And on the plane with us, Where my uncle and my aunt and my cousin, Danny Dayan, who later became Consul General in New York, and now he's the chairman of Yad Vashem. And we left Argentina a few years before yet another military junta took over. And uh, before this dirty war exploded and erupted, and tens of thousands of Argentinians disappeared, many of them were tortured to death. Some of them were classmates of my late sister. So... You know, Argentina for me is a complex event or notion. It is an amazing place with wonderful food and unbelievable football, soccer, as the Americans say, and and the one and only Lionel Messi. But Argentina is also a warning sign because this is a country that has anything other than political stability, everything other than this democratic gene that we do have. And, you, you know, I have a beloved... Uh, cousin there, and she, she speaks Hebrew, she understands Hebrew, she follows the news here, she watches Uvda, and you know what she wrote me the other day? She said, okay, I can understand it when it happens here, but you guys, that shouldn't be happening in Israel. And every time she writes to me, she ends with the same word in Spanish, "Cuídate," take care of yourself, be careful, which is terrifying. I mean, it, it, it's the way they think. We never thought like this, Yonit. You know that. We never thought we have to take care of ourselves or be careful. We never feared anything like that, and and we are not there yet. We are not there yet. The thing is that when you are, it's too late. And and it's true that uh, democracies die hard and die slowly, and the point of no return is invisible. And it's often very tricky. And that's why I think that we have to turn on the light bright and powerful and now.
0: Just on that point about you mentioning your background in Argentina, as the non-Israeli in this conversation, I'm curious how that lands when you mention in in Israel. Does it have more force for you to say to your audience that, look, I was not born here, I'm somebody who came from outside, or or, or, or does it land with an extra power for that reason?
2: I'm not sure. The one thing that might land with an extra power is the fact that since I was not born here, being an Israeli was never taken for granted by me or my brother or my cousins. And so the Zionist miracle is a very personal and intimate and emotional miracle for me. And that lands powerful, I hope, with people who listen because it means, you know, I got a WhatsApp from an extreme right-wing guy Saturday night, and I don't know him, I don't know him. And uh, he wrote me, until now I believe that you love this country, now I know that you're willing to burn everything down uh, after I heard your monologue. And I answered him, I responded. I said, I thought that everything I said came out of deep love to this country, out of sheer and simple patriotism. You are free to think otherwise, and that's okay. You can disagree with me, with the judicial reform, with everything, I think, but just bear in mind that I love this country. And he wrote back, "I believe you, and I appreciate your response." So maybe we did something. <laughs> uh, move the
1: door. Um, yeah, it's you know, it's almost twelve weeks into this this inner inner turmoil, and the Minister of Justice Yariv Levin meticulously setting down his plan. Let's sort of pause and look at where we are. I think it's uh, safe to say that the coalition did not expect this sort of pushback mm-hmm. in so many aspects of Israeli life. The protesters that are stepping up and, and you know, filling the streets, the reservists that's, that are saying that they're not coming to duty, the uh, economists that are warning, like, it's pretty safe to say they did not expect this kind of pushback. And I think it's safe to say that they are, at least slightly, changing course.
2: H- how do you see that? How do you see this this recent week that we've experienced? Everything you said, of course, I agree with 100%. And we are now at the point in which, as we speak, the Judicial Committee in the Knesset is supposed to confirm the revised proposal for the revamping of the makeup of the Judicial Appointments Committee. And and, and as, as you said, there was this, uh, there's this book by the Portuguese uh, author on blindness, Mm-hmm. Right? So the, yes. It's this called is blindness the, in English. Yes. Yeah, this is the story of on blindness. They had a blind spot, mm-hmm. lots of blind spots, as to the public response, as to the fact that people will be invested in protesting this reform, as to the fact that the electorate of Likud and the right wing is less invested, less invested by and large, and as to the fact that, you know, The economists, everything you mentioned, and the Americans Mm -hmm. and the international community, Mm -hmm. there was a blind spot. So now you have the revised proposal. And I think what we have to be attentive to and to see what happens is, A, does it come down the streets? We know it will not. Mm -hmm. Because I believe that Israelis arrived to this point in time, not naive and very ripe all those who lead the protest. And the second thing that we have to, to see, it, what will happen when the revised proposal lands in the Supreme Court? Will the Supreme Court strike down this legislation? And even more important, what will happen if it does? What will the government do? Mm-hmm. Yariv Levin already stated that will be a crossing of a red line. He will not accept, he, sh- he thinks such a ruling should not be accepted. But imagine, imagine that the Supreme Court only grants an interim order, holding on or stopping the mm-hmm. legislation. Even less so, Even less so. imagine that the Supreme Court grants a milder decree, what, what we call an order nisi which is inviting the government or the coalition to give some reasons to explain why is it that they go ahead with this, you know, polluting or politicization of the appointments process. And I'll give you another option. What happens if the Supreme Court at the end of the day does not strike down the legislation, (laughs) but determines that it will be applicable after Bibi is done being prime minister because he's invested in his trial, because he has a very clear interest in the profile of the Supreme Court, because some of the Supreme Court justices will be sitting on his appeal if and when it is arriving to the uh, Supreme Court, what if they decide? Many, many, many options are there for them to decide. So we're up for an interesting era. Uh, but, but, but you need, uh, <laughs> it's, it's very clear. it's very clear that nobody on the opposition, on the protest, on the streets, nobody is taking this uh, withdrawal, retreat, softening of mm-hmm. the uh, judicial overall very seriously. Nobody.
0: That would be a brilliant play by the Supreme Court if they said, "Fine, you can have it, but it's going to—it won't benefit you personally." <laughs> that would flush out completely his motive for this, uh, because lots of people have been saying, "Oh, yes, it's only for technocratic reasons he wants to do it. It's nothing to do with his own case." Fine, let's you know call that bluff. So that would be interesting. But underneath all this is this question: it seems to me of motive and how and 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 what the Prime Minister himself wants, whether he wants a compromise. And he's to some extent a prisoner of the, you know, more hawkish, more right-wing elements in his own coalition. In fact, even in his own party, in the form of Yury Levin. If that's right, and he's you know wants a compromise, or if he doesn't, but if he does, do you think there's any kind of a burden, almost sort of moral burden, on opposition figures? And for some reason, I'm thinking of Benny Gantz, but there might be others, to say to him look, we will give you the votes you need, we'll come into coalition with you, you can lose some of the more extreme elements, and that way you can get a moderate, genuinely compromised package through without relying on these more extreme elements. Should they be doing that, or is that to miss the point because he himself does not want a compromise?
2: As to the question whether Benny Gantz or his friends should enter the coalition and this is the way they did during COVID and uh, what we call you know, going under the military stretch and carrying the wounded because they think they, ha- they are the ones to save the country, I have no good answer. I mean, as far as politics goes, uh, Benny Gantz was um, cheated one time by Bibi. I'm not sure he's going to do it twice. Uh, on the other hand, really, I don't know. I I'm sure one thing is, I'm, I'm sure all three of us would give a lot to be a fly on the wall in the conversations between two persons, mm-hmm. Netanyahu and Yariv Levin. And mm-hmm. what does Netanyahu really feel towards this guy who is his confidant? He goes with him a long way. He trusted him with his closest secrets and political maneuvers. And he knows, we are sure, that he knows that Yerif Levin led him to a deadlock, led him to a crisis like no other, like none, like nothing we've known before. I bet the biggest crisis that the state of Israel has ever known in terms of constitutional crisis, social crisis, economic crisis, international crisis, Bibi knows that. He's sharpest than all of us. He's knowledgeable than all of us. He's experienced than all of us. If if you ask me if he wants a compromise, it's no secret he does. What will he do to promote one? Or will he stop everything? Or does he still think that he can maneuver us into a kind of compromise that years before he could have sold the public, now he cannot? God knows. NBB.
1: Because you called it <laughs> blind
2: <laughs> you called it blind spots.
1: It's really interesting because I mean, this is a man, and we're talking about still talking about Netanyahu who knows to sell everything to everyone. The man is the greatest comeback kid in world politics, I think. And this was run. I'm just looking from his perspective, from the perspective who, who people who want this. Uh, overhaul. This mm-hmm. was run terribly from the beginning. Even, I think, the biggest mistake is probably to try running everything all at once, right, uh, uh, through the Knesset. Uh, the hubris of Yariv Levine thinking he could actually get away with it. And I wonder, first of all, what happens to the Netanyahu magic? And on the other side, when you look at the people standing up against this, I don't know if you and I had had this conversation six months ago, and you would told me that people would be, hundreds of thousands of Israelis would be on the streets protesting an override clause with the majority of 61. I mean, this is a complicated issue, but people just got it and stepped out. So I guess that's, a, that's about five questions in one question, but I'm talking about the, the mistakes that one side made and the, and the success of the other side.
2: As far as the mistakes, by one side, uh, as I told you, I think there was a miscalculation. There was a miscalculation. Nadav Argaman, the head of the Shin Bet that I interviewed the other day, said that uh, they thought it will be fast and uh, sharp, and before we know it, the legislation will be behind us. Never happened. As far as the other side goes, I think what Israelis understood is that we are facing a constitutional moment. And uh, that's a term coined by an American legal scholar. His name is Bruce Ackerman. And it's a moment in which history melts into structure and architecture of the state, of its institutions, of its democracy. People understood that we had one constitutional moment in 1948. It was a moment of grace in which the land of Israel was founded and an old constitution was established. But the Declaration of Independence secured equality for all and secured a Jewish liberal democracy. That was 1948. 2023 is our second constitutional moment in which liberal democracy is up for grabs, in which there is an assault on the Jewish democracy, the only Jewish democracy we ever had. And people understood that, Yonit. I think somehow mm-hmm. constitutional law became a household commodity, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's what drove people to the street. You know, our, our colleague Ari Shavit once wrote that Israel is the most democratic nation among the threatened ones, and the most threatened one and among the democratic ones. Mm-hmm. And now the threat is on democracy itself. Mm-hmm. But the bad news is that the external threat has gone nowhere. It's not like Hamas joined Likud, or Iran has turned its nuclear installations into chocolate factories, and Nasrallah, as you know, is saying out loud that Jews are weak, it's time to strike. So we have it all, Mm -hmm. the external threats and the internal threat, and Israelis got it. Now, there's good news and there's bad news, and we can talk about it all, but that's what has driven people to the streets. I know it because I see it, because I feel it, and because I know that it's not a zero-sum game. It's a dangerous game. It's a dangerous game because, as as you can see, you hear them. You hear Nasrallah, you hear the Iranians, you hear the Americans, and you see what's happening. It's
0: nothing that we can take easily. That seems completely persuasive to me, the idea this is a huge moment in the 75-year history of the country. I wonder if historians, though, will look back and say, Yes, the moment that or the the cause that brought people out was this change in the constitutional rules, but underneath it was a whole lot of other things and that there was a sort of pent-up feeling that brought out these protesters, which boils down to a sense that a particular kind of Israel, meaning the people who do the military service, who pay the taxes, often secular, thought up to this point, but we've had it with being pushed and pushed and pushed, and now you've pushed us too far. And that, that, yes, it's got these sort of constitutional mechanisms are the actual prompt, but underneath it is a sense that this other Israel that has been taken for granted for so long uh, has been pushed over a limit. And that's what brought people to the streets. And but tell me what you think.
2: And you know, Jonathan, this is the part that I feel most uncomfortably with, with regard to the protest, in the sense that the have are on the streets much more than the have-nots. The fighter pilots, the intelligence officers, the high-tech unicorns. And that's something that we have to bear in mind. This is the Israel that is in, on the streets. I know I know it's, it's it's a generalization. I know there are many other people. But the fact that the fighter pilots are using their privilege to say we will not volunteer anymore, right, once a week, And those are the fighter pilots that are supposed to strike in Iran or Syria, what have you. This is something which, on the one hand, I mean, it's their right and it's their leverage. On the other hand, it makes me feel uncomfortable in the sense that it it exposes, as you said, the rifts within Israeli society between the haves and the have-nots, between liberals and conservatives, between those who believe in the state of Tel Aviv and those who believe in the state of Jerusalem. Now, the point is that uh, we held it somehow together for 75 years, and we thought that this will never happen Mm -hmm. until it did. Mm -hmm. And so will we be able to mend the rift? Will we be be able to construct? I've been uh, uh, corresponding with Yonit last night to reconstruct this kind of constructive repression. I've never been to a psychologist, (laughs) I must admit, but I know that they sometimes, or I believe, without going to a psychologist, I believe in repression. You don't have to deal with everything all the time. And we didn't deal with many of those issues for years. The best example is abortion. The issue that tears the American society apart in Israel is resolved in a small room in a hospital with a committee. I know that some women think this should also be over and done with. But this is an example of a constitutional or a legal or a social repression. We don't open it up, we close it and we solve it somehow. Mm-hmm. And this is what I hope it happened. Because if we open everything up, this society has no future. Because it is it was born as a pluralistic and heterogenic and 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 so so colorful society. It held up for 75 years. I hope it does for the next many, many years. But
0: but this is my point, that if you've opened up Pandora's box like this, then making a little fix to the number of appointments on the Judicial Committee or whatever isn't going to solve it. You know, now this is opened up, it's too big to put back with just constitutional fixes. It's beyond your point about constitutional moment. It's gone beyond that now. It's actually about who really governs this country.
2: It's part of the blindness, spot. the genies are not going so fast back to the bottle. You're right. Yeah.
1: But uh, this exactly that feeling, like when we were talking about this, you and I, we, we, it's exactly that feeling of you know Israel kind of being held up by a lot of scotch tape and ambition, right? And and kind of hoping that everything will be okay. This is going to hold, but it's also, I mean, this makes sense maybe in a way that this is happening to us as we are celebrating our seventy fifth year. As celebratory as this will be this year, yeah, but yeah. but I mean, this is a country sort of stepping out of its inception and stepping out of the first stages of its existence and now asking the very tough questions. Who are we? Who do we want to be? Are we one country? Are we two countries? I mean, this is a ball is rolling uh, downhill. And I'm really I'm I'm sort of uh, attaching myself to Jonathan's question here. What happens like this will not die down again, because now it's Pesach, and they changed a little bit of the of the writing and the legislation like this is opening up Everything and so, what Uh, are we supposed to sort of deny everything and then just go back to normal life? I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I'll tell
2: you what. I I was reminded last night as we corresponded, you and I, of what uh, the late uh, author Amos Oz wrote many years ago. He said that Israel is a federation of mistakes. That it's a grand bazaar of contradicting dreams and visions of people who came here from all over. Some of them wanted to reconstruct the shtetl, and some of them wanted to rebuild the kingdom of David, and some of them wanted to build a kibbutz and a socialist Ethiopia. And these dreams don't live with each other, but somehow they did until they didn't. But we all know, all three of us, each and every one of us from his or her point of view, that it has been a dream come true. It did happen. We did manage to build here an amazing society, an amazing country, an amazing miracle. So, and, and you know what, Yonit? I think about the friends of my kids, okay? The friends of my kids are from everywhere, every place in Israel, from settlements, from big cities, from left, from right, Orthodox and unorthodox, and those who were Orthodox and are not anymore, and gay and straight and everything. Uh, Yaeli served for seven years in the military with people from all over. One of those right-wing guys that texted me Mm -hmm. after the broadcast last Thursday, he said, I disagree with everything you said, and I'll explain why. And he explained, and I responded. And then he said, you know what? I was an officer with your daughter in Givati, and I love her, so I love you too. (laughs) So, I mean, I mean, there's something to the fabric of this society and forget about not celebrating Pesach together. We will celebrate Pesach together and our sister-in-law will be sour because she's such to begin with. It doesn't have anything to do with the judicial upheaval. And we have so many family issues anyway. Uh, we'll celebrate Pesach together and I don't know about your matzmot, it's going to be a tough one. But what I'm saying, there is, I'll, I'll tell you what, I think there still is, a sense of common destiny. Goral Meshutaf, that's the one thing that I believe in. There's a sense of common destiny. Perhaps now we cannot feel it because of what's going on in the streets and in government, but I think most Israelis still bear it and still have it in their blood system. This sense of common destiny that brought us to this country and I hope will keep us together. Uh, There's nothing, I hope, more than that.
0: Can I just... Because I think you're right to focus on the big picture like that. Let me bring us back to the actual sort of mechanics of this thing. And if... And you sketched out different scenarios for the Supreme Court striking down this legislation. But if they do, and you get into this kind of standoff where the government say one thing is the law and the Knesset say one thing is the law and the Supreme Court say another... What then happens? I mean, I saw a headline in one of the Israeli papers saying, you know, who does the military take orders from in that situation? I mean, who then is in charge? Because you're also a professor of law, can you talk us through how that plays out? Uh, Everybody's speaking about this constitutional
2: crisis behind the corner. And I think the more we speak about it, the best. Because the more we speak about it, I believe, Jonathan, that our leaders and particularly one leader, will realize that is something that shouldn't happen. We had Minister Barkat, the Minister of the Economy the other day, already stating, and that was the first hint within Likud, that they will not go there. They will not disobey the Supreme Court of Justice. I don't see Netanyahu going there. Perhaps, and there's a columnist writing that in Haaretz this morning, Sami Peretz, that perhaps Netanyahu wants Bagatz to do the job for him so that he can turn back to Yariv Levin and say, it's not me, it's them, it's always good to blame Babgat, it's win-win, everything is good. I don't believe they will go there, and I believe, and that's something, it's one of the reasons that drove me to speak my mind this time, not only last Thursday, but but even before that in the press with our colleagues from Channel 12 and in other places. It's because I think many Israelis and the Prime Minister knows that the Supreme Court of Justice in Israel is not the last fortress. It's the only fortress protecting Israeli democracy. If we have checks and balances, Jonathan, they stay there on this building on the hill in Jerusalem. It's the only kind of checks and balances we have. What I'm talking now is purely empirical data. There was an article, a table, designed by Professor Amichai Cohen from the Israeli Institute of Democracy, and he analyzed 68 democracies, 29 of them have two chambers of parliament. 28 of them have a president with executive powers. 11 of them have a federal system of government. 28 are members of the European Union. 35 have regional elections, like you guys in, in Britain, or are subordinate somehow to the European Court of Justice, like you guys in the UK. None of them, none of them is like Israel, in which there's only one guardian of liberal democracy, of human rights and of the minorities. It's the Supreme Court of Justice. I know that Netanyahu knows that. So when uh, when this fortress is in danger of falling, I, I believe even our leaders, our current leaders, will not let it happen. Mm-hmm. I, I think so.
1: It's it's not only uh, Barak. Also, Ariadiri said that he would uphold the the decision, and I, I right. agree with you that the more this is in the mainstream discussion more people will have to step up and say, this is going to be insanity and you're going to have to stop it before it happens, but, but I'm wondering about something else, because there is obviously a large group of Israelis who want this reform, for whatever reason, if they're settlers and they, you know, they think that the high court has is, is done them wrong or they're, a, a, as you said, you, you mentioned this, right, they're orthodox who want this exemption for military service or they just think Netanyahu should get off from his trial, or they're really ideologues who think that the Supreme Court is too powerful and there's a rebalancing of power that's needed. What will happen to those people if tomorrow Netanyahu says, you know what, we're halting. I'm I'm stopping. We'll have to revise. We'll have to rewrite. We're going to stop. And the protests worked and they won, right? What will happen to that group?
2: Uh, you, you, you will laugh at me for what I'm going to tell you now, because I never told you that. Mm-hmm. Some years ago, I got a telephone call from the American ambassador to Israel. And he said, I know that you wanted so much, the interview with President Obama, but Yonit is going to get it. (laughs) And it took me a while to, (laughs) to say to myself, you win some, you lose some. Now, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. But any camp that loses here, and somebody will, will be resentful, and then will realize you win some, you lose some. Now, as the camp... That supports this judicial reform goals, there's one thing that I can relate to, and it's the sentiment. There's a sentiment, a deep sentiment within orthodox, within settlers, within right wing, with it BB supporters, that the Supreme Court was not fair, took too much power, ruled against them too many times. Now you can quarrel with them, you can argue with them, you can show them wrong in parts of the of the argument. But at the end of the day, they have this sentiment and they carry a scar from the disengagement in 2005 and so forth. So we have to relate to this sentiment. But but, I believe that our job now is to show many Israelis that the Supreme Court of Justice is there for all of them. If you're a minority, when you're a minority, if you're a settler if you're an orthodox jew if you're a woman if you're gay if you're poor if you're underprivileged this is what we have to convince them so so it's it's not like you need it's not like if you keep the independence of the judicial system that is what's up for grabs that that will be on the expense at the expense of these people that, that's what i'm i'm trying to say but yes we have to we have to relate to the sentiment and i think and that is very important to say That the Supreme Court of Justice for many years was not attentive, that justices themselves for years were not as attentive as they should have been to that sentiment and to that very deep Mm -hmm. feeling within large parts of, of the Israeli public.
1: No, there's a lovely line by Amir Fuchs, who is someone we both know well, uh, Ilan, who said mm-hmm. that, that the Supreme Court has protected Israeli citizens for such a long time. Now it's time for the citizens to protect the Supreme Court. We should just only mention, since you used that metaphor, that you evened the score on the Obama slate. Just for historical record, <laughs> just to say that that happened too. The conversation happened from the other side as well.
2: Yes, Jonathan. That's a, well, as I said, uh, we win some, I, we lose some. <laughs>
0: I hesitate to get between the two of you on this (laughs) subject. Um, but I, but you are both being characteristically empathetic to the people, uh, who are defending these changes. I, I just wanted to ask a a more skeptical or sort of, uh, even perhaps cynical thing about the motive of the people really pushing this. And I get that, you know, there may be some sort of abstract, you know, jurisprudential thinking going on with Levin and Rothman, two of the people pushing for this, but, I just wanted to put to you this thesis, which was put to me, which is you've got to see this as very, very practical and hard headed by two of the groups. One is the ultra orthodox think this is the way to fix permanently as a constitutional right their exemption from military service. And on the ultra nationalist wing, this is a chance at last to erase in any kind of last vestigial legal way. The line that separates Israel from the occupied territories and for both groups, the constitutional reform here that is, uh, is a very practical prize they need. They need to neutralize, weaken the Supreme Court to make way for those two big changes in the kind of basic with a small b, basic laws of the country. And if that is right, that's a very useful way to know what we're dealing with here. So just this may have to be our final question, but Ilana, what do you think? Do you think that's what's going on with those two groups in particular?
2: It might be the case that that's what's going on, but, but bear in mind, Jonathan, that the two issues that you mentioned can be pushed out of the brackets of this whole reform. We can keep Israeli liberal democracy keep the independence of the judicial system and resolve the Palestinian problem in another way. I mean, I think the Palestinian problem, the occupation, the annexation, the settlements is something that has to do with different formulas of risk management by different Israelis. Both of them, all of them can believe in a liberal democracy and disagree with regard to the Palestinian conflict. The same goes for the mandatory draft of the Orthodox. I think... There's a point to be made in favor of immunizing a law that exempts some of all or the majority of whatever, what have you, that lays down a solution for this problem. The Israeli military will do without the ultra-Orthodox, okay? And we can exempt it and immunify it from any judicial review. That can be done if only there is true dialogue, not this kind of brutal blitz in which they not only want an override clause, but they want to immunize all basic laws without defining what a basic law is and then eroding the status of the legal advisors and then splitting the role of the attorney general and then uh, appointing a a prosecutor general who might do whatever. This is the, the point. The blitz, the brutal blitz of legislation all aimed at the same goal. And I think one thing that we have to realize this week is the following: When we try to estimate where are we and where are we heading with this new revised proposal, uh, you know it comes after this carpet bombardment that I just tried to describe of bills and statements and laws and legislation, and after the group leading this judicial overhaul has already exposed its cards and its agenda. And I thought about this line, you know, Yonit, that is inscribed at the entrance to the officer's academy in the IDF, let every Hebrew mother know that the fate and the life of her son is in the hands of the finest commanders. That's the inscription. So let every Hebrew mother know that the appointment of her judges is in the hands of people who do not believe in a liberal democracy and who try to crush it and who believe in a very slim, formalistic, anorectic form of democracy in which human rights are not truly protected. This is something that is already clear to many Israelis. From now on, we can continue with the discussion.
1: (laughs) Ilana, as I feel always with our conversations, I wish we had another three hours to talk. (laughs) Can <laughs> I indulge Winston.
2: you with one uh, quote you know, our friend uh, Amir Fuchs, uh, yes. uh, you need that you mentioned. And Jonathan, I bet you heard about Menachem Begin, right? Just a little bit, yeah.
1: Jonathan Jonathan wrote some of
2: his speeches.
0: <laughs> Can you imagine?
2: And, uh, and you know, our friends from the right and our colleagues from the right always uh, criticize us. Where were you when Begin was in power? You weren't as empathetic to, the, to him and you weren't such big fans of Begin when he was in power. Where I, I uh, was a s- young girl, but I, I remember that even back then, I thought that the, the apocalyptic visions of the left when Begin came to power were, were nonsense. But Amir Fuchs, our friend, sent me a quote of Begin Mm-hmm. From an article he wrote back in 1953, when Ben Gurion was trying to take over the appointments committee for judicial posts, okay, and listen to what Begin wrote: "It is my duty as a citizen of this country to warn its rulers, infected with a toxic disease of power, from the terrible path on which they mounted, out of fear." and aimed at terrifying us. Remember, he who deviates from the verdict of the law defines the verdict of his own government." This is Begin, 1953.
0: A good note to close on those words. I think we have mentioned a couple of times on the podcast that there was indeed a tradition on the right that's elevated the rule of law to the highest ideal and that that, in some ways, has been in danger. Ilana, you quoted Amos Oz to us before. I think you've um, you've honored that tradition by giving us uh, words of wisdom and reflection in this 45-minute conversation. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. And thanks very much for coming on Unholy.
2: It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much, Jonathan, Todaraba.
1: Thank you, Thank you, Ilana.
2: Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: So you can see why we felt this conversation with Ilana Diane was one that was worth listening to. Again, many of the points she made there have absolutely been borne out. They have not gone away. I think this is one of those conversations people might come back to to get a snapshot, a sense of quite how epic the uh, crisis Israel went through and in some ways is still going through really was.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's important not only to be a great journalist and bring stories, but also knowing how to put it in words. And to uh, sort of, you know, explain this to the public, I think no one does it better than Ilana does. She's a wordsmith, and I think that that was an important conversation to listen to again. We will be coming up with a few of those in the next couple of weeks.
0: We'll see you next time. See you. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.